Hey, Damon. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? I am awesome. I am excited. I want to get your take on something super interesting and important. What control we have over our mindset and what control our mindset has over us. Wow. Yes. I think uh, I want to get your take on, on that topic as well. I want to start with a story then. Okay, cool. Because um, the story has been running through my head and this is what inspired this topic. In college, uh, my friend Andrew and a friend of his invented this competition they called the happiness game. And the way it worked is they went to the dining hall together and they went through the buffet line and they each made a plate of food for the other person. And the goal was to make as disgusting yet edible a plate as possible. So you might have a scoop of tuna salad, a dollop of peanut butter, a bowl of marinara sauce poured over that. Plenty of ranch dressing and like Fruit Loops, right? <laughs> right. Yum. Yes. Uh, and that might be the plate you make, and then you pass it over to Andrew, and he passes whatever he's made for you, and you start eating, and each turn is sort of one big bite at a time. And the only rule of the game is you have to be exquisitely happy. <laughs> <laughs> With whatever you're eating, you have to smile broadly, you have to savor deeply, you have to say, mmm, ah, oh, this is just so delicious. Uh, and the winner is like whoever can go the longest without breaking character. You lose when you stop being happy. That's, that's it. That sounds amazing. These two sound like they have really honed their mindset skills from a young age. You could definitely tell he was a, a philosophy major. <laughs> and I've been taking... I don't know what it says about me, but I've been taking a lot of inspiration from that lately. Like, can I make my entire life the happiness game? Right. Because on the one hand, obviously it's ridiculous. It's juvenile. It's probably a waste of food. On the other hand, it's actually philosophically pretty deep. Like, here's Marcus Aurelius. Quote, everything is but what your opinion makes it. And that opinion lies with yourself. Or here's Shakespeare. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So that's the gauntlet I want to throw to you. Those are the questions I want to push to your side of the table on the tray. <laughs> From your work and the research you know, is it true our mindset controls our take on everything? If so, can we change our mindset? How? <laughs> and are there any risks or downsides to doing so? Like, will we become sappy idiots or someone who drools over Fruit Loops with ranch dressing? Right. So the plate has now been made. I am pushing it to you. Mmm, tuna and Fruit Loops. Oh. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I am thrilled to, to uh, receive this plate, Jeremy. You know, it's, it's such an interesting thing, right? I mean, you could easily see on one hand where it's, hey, look, this is sort of like pop psychology or crackerjack box type material. You know, oh, you're, you're feigning happiness and, and you're wincing at the same time because of the, the, the flavor profiles that you're trying to like get down your throat. But I would say that mindset is it is a hub for so much of how we perceive what it is that is around us. Hmm. And, and that's an interesting question as well, right? What is reality? Yes. 
right? I mean, is reality my perception of reality? And, you know, we know now that number one, memory is not reliable. You know, they've done numerous studies where people are to recall what happened 10, 20 years ago with very little success uh, during major events. Uh, you know, where were you on 9-11, for example? Uh, you would think that most everyone would know exactly where they're at. It turns out that a lot of people kind of recreate that story and it's a fallacy. Hmm. So if our memory doesn't serve us, then what about our perception in the moment? And where are we filtering? Who are the influencers, if you will, inside of us who are deciding what's important and what's not and what makes us happy and what doesn't? There are ways to construct your framework around mindset to play into your strengths and view things through a a lens that is more uh, in line with your value set. You know, for example, positive psychology uses a tool called the values and action character strengths. Values and actions character strengths. Yeah, yeah. And it's a free assessment. You can do it online. And the basic premise is, is that we all have these different strengths. So there's 24 of them that they break it down into. And they categorize those within under the umbrella of six different virtues. So we all have all 24, but obviously... You know, we have our go-tos and we have the ones that we're, we're, you know, the muscles that we've exercised more. um, And then those that we sort of have, you know, they have dust on them in the closet. This is making me think of of a physical therapy where you often are not repairing the muscle that you hurt. You're building up all the surrounding muscles so it doesn't get hurt again. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and so if you think about that in concert with the fact that nearly 60% of our behaviors, actions, uh, thoughts and such are things that are happening below the surface, well, what then is reality when we're constructing it? You know, how accurate is that? So I do think that there is a lot of credence to this as a concept Here's a quick example. You know, we're going through a period in time right now where uh, radical shift, right? Radical change is going on. And let's just use the fact that universities are all closing down. And let's just assume that we're a professor at one of these universities and we've poured our heart and our time into our lesson plans, our curriculum. And they really rely on a lot of, uh, you know, personal interaction with our students. You know, we're going to be saying in that moment, you know, what the heck is this? This is awful, number one. Number two, I've put all this work in and and now there's no value or validity to uh, all the heavy lifting I've done. Number three, my students are going to think I'm a fool because I don't even know how, the first thing about Zoom hmm. and all of the other thoughts that can kind of, you know, you can go down that path, um, which ultimately ends up, you know, kind of leading toward this victim place of why me? Why has this happened? So let's let's shift and let's think about it in terms of mindset. Let's say that this person's virtue was courage and their their character strength was honesty. Well, the same scenario and that same professor and his dialogue could go something like this. Oh, this is awful, but also it's awful for everyone. Um, I've put a lot of work into this. 
But maybe I can use it as a teachable moment where I allow my students in and show them that, uh, you know, my processes to figure out how to use Zoom. Oh, and also maybe they will be more responsive in the comforts of their own home. So I am going to press forward and I'm going to eat the tuna slash Fruit Loops bowl with a smile on my face. Now, did anything change in reality? No, the university still closed. But the perception of how that person confronted and addressed it had a huge impact, not just on their self-talk, but on their nervous system. Um, You know, the snowball effect of the stress and all of the negative rumination of these, you know, uh, 90% negative thoughts and repeat thoughts that just get kind of played over and over and over again. So if that's the case, if we're really kind of in this negative space and retread thinking for 90% of the time, and we're approximately 60,000 thoughts a day, well, that's 10% where that we're in positive, productive, creative thoughts. That's 6,000 thoughts a day. So mindset to me is the influencer, translator, if you will, to allow us to kind of keep our focus on some of those 6,000 thoughts and choose from that pool to then, you know, move into our day-to-day reality with more control. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that mindset's the sun and how we perceive the world is sort of what orbits around that. Do you see that when you're coaching teams or athletes too? Are there circumstances where it just seems they've totally lost control or they can't make it back, but you can sort of change your framing or your mindset to think of it as a growth moment or even a success? I definitely see it happening. I don't think it happens on the fly. I think it takes practice and you have to sort of prepare for that moment. So with people I work with, we do uh, pre-mortems and we think of all the worst case scenario stuff that could possibly happen. And, and by doing so, then we have a plan for if something like that happens. And that's really different than how I think we were, at least how I was raised, uh, or just in general, the, you know, the general sense out there, like, oh, don't, don't envision the negative thing because then you'll do that thing. Well, this is different. You're, you're actually troubleshooting uh, myriad negative things that, that potentially could happen, but you're also inserting some action steps in there so that in, if the case does arise in that way, you've got a game plan. It's a small distinction, but I think it's a really important and powerful one. I've been trying that with worries where if I'm worried something is going to happen, I don't push away the worry. I don't totally turn control over to the worry, but I kind of think, well, okay, let's say that happened. What would be the consequence? Can I live with that? And the answer pretty much always has to be yes, you could, because otherwise, (laughs) uh, you know, your life would literally end. And I also, I don't know if this is positive psychology or, or negative psychology, almost perversely sometimes can almost say, okay, well, let's let this happen, you know, and let me see how happy I can be in that situation too, in a sort of uh, stiff upper lip or maybe just kind of, uh, what's the term, grit. Mm. Uh, so I don't know, talk me through where that makes sense and where I'm kind of leading myself awry 
and sort of <laughs> into indulging in negativity or, or perversity even. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Marcus Aurelius and, you know, he's a, a, a great Stoic and, you know, the essence of Stoicism being that imagery or visualization around loss. So let me backtrack and say that, you know, our brains are constantly in this crave mode, always wants more. And it always is sort of trying to keep us safe, trying to keep us alive and wants more at the same time. It's a really pushy you know, organ. So in any given moment, you can take things for granted. You know, when I was young, I saved up. I, got, I bought uh, a scooter. It was the most incredible thing on planet Earth until it wasn't, until I wanted a moped. Hmm. And then that became the most, sh- the shiniest object, you know, that I could possibly imagine until it wasn't, until I wanted a VW bug convertible. Right. <laughs> and on and on. And I'm, I'm excited about the Lamborghini Kunta. <laughs> the Tesla is looking hot right now, you know? Yeah. So, and, and this is what happens. And, and if you don't check yourself, then, you know, this is kind of, this, this type of thing can spiral. Well, stoicism basically would say, while I own that moped uh, and, I'm, and I'm craving that VW bug convertible, hey, I want you to meditate on not having this moped any longer. How does that feel? When you can put yourself there and say, oh, wow, my moped's gone. Oh, and then you, then you go in the garage and you see it, you have a newfound appreciation for it. So I do think there is something to uh, exploring these worries, not just so that you're ready for them if they happen, but that you're more appreciative of what you have right now. So that's number one. And then number two is when we push up against some of those fears when we entertain some of the things that are, you know, kind of deep in the closet or that have typically kind of, you know, make us a little shaky in the knees, when we can do that uh, and sort of scale that and, and do it in a slow paced way, it's called exposure therapy. And you're giving, you're giving yourself a little taste. You're immunizing yourself against this thing that seems so dark and dreary, so big and, and ominous. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of value in keeping the expansion or curiosity, wide angle lens, the aperture open when you are exploring some of these areas. And not only does it do, does it do that, that I just said, but it increases our capacity to handle a little stress. And that is something that all of us need right now. I think of two ways to play with this that kind of feel opposite. And I don't know if they're equally fine or equally troubled. So let me get your take, if I may. Sure thing. So in this situation, I kind of have two mindsets that I've been playing with. And I don't know if you have advice about which one works better than the other or if both of them are follies or if they're both brilliant. And I'm brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> So one of them is if I'm in a situation, I can say that that's adverse from one perspective. I can act as if I chose this situation. Like it's not happening to me. I chose it. I am still uh, the puppet master, if you will. Or on the complete other end of the spectrum, I can say, you know, I'm actually never in control. And this is just an example. And it's just reminding me of that, that I'm always in the waves. And it's just always about standing up and finding a way to surf, what's hitting me. And when I think that I'm in control, that's the illusion. So those are the sort of two opposite ends of the spectrum that I've been playing with. This is my choice. 
or nothing is my choice. <laughs> Do you have, uh, you know, any take on whether those are good, bad, or indifferent? I mean, it's just so interesting. The ability to sort of distinguish what's real and then just the narrative around how we frame the stimuli, really, that comes our way. You know, there, there's there's a way to sort of construct this through uh, what are called mental models. And mental models are really just these, like a scaffolding to help us make sense of reality so that we're not kind of beholden to our own uh, whimsical interpretation. And when you say that, the, the model that comes up for me is called the drama triangle. And it is a, a psychological model. And essentially, if you think about the triangle... There are three points, and the first point is, is victim, where you are, you know, what you're describing is, you know, why me? Why is this stuff always happening to me? And then the other point on the triangle is the persecutor. Like, why, you know, why are you always doing this thing? You know, if this is something that you would potentially say to another person or a situation. And the third point is the rescuer, which... Uh, you know, clearly is that person who was either trying to help the victim out of the the dark hole, really almost trying to avoid the persecutor. And so the 2.0 version is called the empowerment dynamic. And, and that is really, you know, shifting from victim to more of a self-author or creator. And why I bring that up is because it sounds like that's kind of what the, you know, the musing is, is about when you're saying, Everything's in my control or nothing's in my control. And so I, I think that that has to be uh, something that people come to terms with on their own. So, so is it real to consistently in every situation in your life say, oh, I created that. Oh, I created that uh, fever for myself so that I can uh, really rest. For me, that seems more along the lines of wishful thinking so at the end of the day, I think this really does boil down to N equals one, which is you are the only you that's ever been. And so I think there's some responsibility that each individual has, but I do like the fact that you can kind of lay out these models and use them to absorb sort of the harshness of reality and if if one finds themselves kind of echoing or parroting the line of oh I, I created that, but really underneath the surface of the language there's a lot of tension and stress and anxiety. Well, then maybe it's time to pull out the surfboard and see if you can kind of ride this out. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's I have control or I created it as much as act as if I chose to be in the situation or some higher version of myself chose to be in the situation. But on the flip side, I mean, you're right. There's a wonderful saying a colleague of my wife uses. She says, some people say everything happens for a reason. I just say everything happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a great philosophy. You know, and she also, when something crazy happens, she also likes to say, she says, plot twist. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I don't know if that's self authoring or just seeing yourself kind of from above. And you're like, I'm in a story. I'm not in control. The pages are turning. And I'm glad I'm still a character, I guess. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that one. Plot twist. Yeah, that's good. 
in the empowerment dynamic, you talked about victim, persecutor, rescuer. What are the three elements in the 2.0? So the three elements are replacing the victim with creator or self-author, replacing the rescuer with supporter, and replacing the persecutor with challenger. Mm. And the main the main frame that I would like the the language around that is, if you are supporting someone else, you, you know you can start that dynamic or relationship with, I know you're okay, but I'm just going to lend you a hand. You're not broken. I'm just going to help you out in this situation. Or if you were in the challenger role, you know same kind of thing. You know I know I know you're okay, but I'm just going to give you a, a gentle prod here, and and that way you're sort of acknowledging the other person as a whole being. Whereas in that first model, the rescuer, frankly, doesn't have faith in the victim that they can they can pull themselves up. And the persecutor really is throwing their barbs because they don't want anyone kind of turning around and taking a look at them. They, they were victims at one point. And so they kind of flipped it around and said, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to be the victim anymore. So I'm just going to, you know, lash out on others. There's this other reading I've been doing in sort of Buddhist thought. And I just read the book, Choosing Compassion by Anam Tupton, for example. Mm -hmm. And he writes about a Tibetan expression that could be translated as having an equal flavor or the same taste. Mm -hmm. And he says, in my tradition, they say that this equal taste is pretty much the only secret to absolute unconditional happiness. It is an experience of some kind of equanimity in which we are no longer lost in our hopes, fears, anger, or anxiety. We are no longer reacting to life situations. We are simply embracing whatever is unfolding in front of us. So all life situations have the same flavors, the same taste. Like, he says, we're experiencing the taste of death as the same as the taste of birth. The taste of losing our possessions as the same as the taste of gaining this and that. And when we experience this, it means we're no longer lost in our preferences, no longer lost in this trap of fear and expectations. And cherry on top, he says some of the Tibetan masters don't even pray for longevity, success, or money. They actually pray intentionally for challenges or difficulties. (laughs) Why? So they can transcend their preferences. (laughs) It really is the happiness game for your entire life. Uh, and so, you know, what do you think about that? Uh, the sort of equal taste and, and kind of, you know, this idea of wearing success and failure, good and bad, a lot more lightly. Um, and when something challenging happens, just say, aha, happiness game. Yes. Yum. Delicious. Thank you. Equal taste, whatever it is. The initial thoughts that come to my mind, harken back into that high performance world, where we are consistently looking to find our edges. We, on the whole, as a species, you know, kind of like that um, homeostasis place, and we just kind of like to be in there. But there's not a lot of growth in there. And so, you know, tying back to that exposure therapy, you know, when we find the edge, without having to define whether that edge feels good or feels bad, it's just an edge. And when we get there, if we can sort of stay open to that experience and really keep the expansion at the forefront, 
and really maintain the sense of curiosity. Say, for example, the uh, the exponential tech world. You know, they want to you know get to these edges, break things, and and sort of fail their way forward. Back to the word mindset. You know, the thesis of the mindset being the hub is. I think valid from a spiritual side and also from a Silicon Valley type side. When we find our edges and when we are more comfortable in that uncomfortable space, what happens? We start to recognize patterns. We increase our capacity to, de- to handle stress and uncertainty. We are more apt to create a more adaptable agile type of response once we get there. You know, when you say that phrase, like, oh, find your edges, you know, what does that really mean? You you can draw out a circle and you can kind of make a line and say, hey, we live inside this circle. Everything outside that circle is unknown to us. And the edges is is sort of where we meet that uh, unknown spot. And we like to kind of like find ourselves central in that circle or at least far away from the edge. So, so when we do get to that edge, what's the typical response? What's the typical response when you put your hand close to fire? You know, you recoil. But in this case, what we're trying to do is do something counterintuitive as the Tibetans are doing. It's counterintuitive to try to like wish for hardship and difficulty. Uh, it's counterintuitive to try to be in uncomfortable places. But mindset. If you set your mind to say, when I get to those places, I'm going to lean in. I am going to explore. Um, so the simple practice that I typically will have people do is I'll say, hey, why don't you, you know, stand up straight and, you know, bend over, try to touch your toes. And for those that can't get there, we all get to that spot where our hamstrings sort of lock and it feels uncomfortable. There's a bit of pain. And we are, our inclination is to rise back up. But what I try to have them do is say, well, find that spot where it feels pain and then stop and then relax and explore. Take a breath, be there for a minute and see if you can go just a little farther without pushing just a little bit farther and get used to that feeling of, ow, this doesn't feel so good, but it triggers me to expand as opposed to contract. So I think you're onto something there from a spiritual path and also from a cutting edge path. I've seen it in activism and organizing too. I've done work with a group that does violence prevention, prejudice reduction, conflict resolution, and something, you know, we're playing with fire the whole time because you're in these workplace settings or heated debates, whether it's gun control or abortion or, you know, you're dealing with racism, sexism, homophobia, other issues laid bare. And that is bringing people that you're facilitating to the edge and hopefully helping them get more comfortable there so they can sort of see their biases and see their connections too. But the part I wanted to share is before we go into these sessions, before we start facilitating these, because we know we're going to be playing with fire. We know a lot's going to come up. Our own buttons are going to be pushed. We say together, I love making mistakes. We don't say that with the audience. (laughs) The trainers alone, that's the kind of training mantra before. I love making mistakes because you have to be loose enough to kind of make mistakes if you're going to be in there. And you have to reframe what success is a little bit. You have to loosen that up. And I I don't know, does does that freedom kind of resonate in what you're talking about, about sort of welcoming the edges as much as the comfort zones? 
A hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. And we've redefined the, the rules for the game. And I think that there, there is an element of that self authoring that's going on in that moment where we're, we've changed the rules and we are allowing ourselves to kind of flip the script, if you will. And, you know, we know from a more, from a neuroscience and neurobiological standpoint that, that nervousness and excitement are the same activation in the brain. It's how you frame it that, that determines what your feeling is about it. Wow. And so if you're scared silly because you're about ready to go on stage for a big presentation or you're going to go into this heated meeting with people who are a lot on the line, instead of in that moment saying, holy crap, I'm so nervous, I'm so tense. If you say literally three times in a row, I'm excited, I'm excited, I'm excited. Now you're conditioning yourself to allow that mindset to dictate how you interpret those, those feelings, physiological feelings, and then you can reframe it. And now it's just go time as opposed to, oh, no time, right? Um, so there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of science behind that practice that they're, that they're doing there. So I would, I would encourage them to continue to do it. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. Three times, Jeremy. Right. How do you feel? Uh, I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) See, it works. It works. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a new friend who I've noticed always asks me and probably other people when our paths cross, what's the most incredible part of your day today? Or what's the most interesting or exciting thing that happened to you today or something like that? (laughs) And the first few times this happened, I was actually kind of stumped (laughs) for several (laughs) seconds. She just totally caught me flat footed because I'm used to the question being, how are you? Mm. And then I either say fine if I don't know the person very well or I'm like, this is what was hard or what I want to complain about <laughs> uh, if I do. You know, it almost seems like I'm inviting the evil eye if I, you know, talk about good things. But when someone asks it so baldly, um, you know, it's a cool reframing. And the really cool part though, it's now on there's days where I think that I will see her, I look for answers in advance. Uh I'm filtering for the positive I've noticed and it makes my whole day better. Love that. I love that. So, you know, maybe it's a bit aggressive to just start asking that of people. uh, If they're not ready for the, you know, what's the most incredible part of your day, but you can have people ask you that. And that's what I've been playing with asking a partner or a close friend to ask you, What's the best part of your day? Or when were you happiest today? Just whoever that person you're having the end of the day conversation with. Because then knowing the question is coming, you'll be looking for answers as you go. Your tray of whatever is on your plate of today for for happiness instead of the opposite. I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, I think it's a um, really smart and fresh way to... uh, you know, approach and interact with a person. And there's a, there's a bunch of science under, underneath that one as well. Uh, they, they did a study with the world Tetris champions, <laughs> for example. And these folks see Tetris patterns everywhere. And that is their reality when they go out in the world. So we're always looking for patterns and the steering wheel, in a sense, towards which patterns that we want to see 
is to kind of tee those things up in our mind beforehand. You know, if you're interested in buying a red car and you start walking down the street, every car you see is a red car. Yes. Right? And so what do, what does that do to your your physiology? What does it do to your mindset down to a cellular level if you are either constantly looking for the thing that's going to go wrong or constantly looking for the thing that's magical? You're going to find what you look for. And that's another business slogan, the business meets psychology slogan is we go where we look. And so if you're looking for those things beforehand, knowing that she potentially will cross your path, you're going to water those seeds and those shoots are going to grow. So I think that that pattern making, in a sense, stimulates meaning making. And then meaning making, you know, allows us to kind of get closer to some of those edges and to play around a little bit with some of that, um, you know, rumination or default mode type of thinking. You know, the other classic one, instead of how are you, is what do you do? Yeah. Uh, what does that mean, right? I mean, that in, in our society, that means what kind of job do you have? And it's a very, it, it just puts people on the defensive immediately, or it makes them, you know, braggadocious, or it just, it, it, it it's a social dog sniffing. It's a social dog sniffing. And when we do that, we sort of get in the little box and we forget about how expansive that life really is and how expansive we really are. And that's just back to that contraction. So if you're looking for these things, you are in a more expansive state. In addiction therapy, they've done some amazing work around what really works. And it's not you know, the, the old classic models of trying to you know, use willpower. We only have so much willpower per day until we just, you know, falter. The one, the one element that has, has sort of profoundly had the most impact in a, in a positive way uh, for smoking cessation has been curiosity about what? Curiosity turns out about smoking. Hmm. So instead of telling people to quit smoking, they tell them to be as curious as possible about what's happening while they're smoking. Mm. And so now you can see like, oh, you know, I just lit this tobacco that's, oh, and it's got this paper wrapped around it. And I'm, I'm inhaling the fumes of the chemicals in my mouth through this little filter. And I'm seeing and feeling the smoke go into my lungs. And when people start to kind of you know, break down the minutia of the process. They're staying curious about the process. They're not trying to label the flavor. You know, ah, this is great. I'm smoking. Or, oh boy, I'm doing it again. I shouldn't do this. No, they're being really curious about actually what's happening. Those people tend to be people that realize on their own, hey, you know what? Maybe I don't want to have this chemical smoke going into my lungs because I'm now I'm, I feel what just changed in my body. So that curiosity is is really, I think, kind of at, at the heart of all this. And that, in a sense, could be a mindset as well, a mindset of just staying open, surfing that wave, a mindset of, you know, understanding that uh, you don't need to label all those flavors. So I think it's great that your friend is doing that. Uh, I'm sort of looking for my own kitschy way to do that myself. I haven't quite landed on the right phrase. Do you have an alternative to what do you do? Now that we've offered an alternative to how are you? I typically will do things that are a slightly askew. 
where I will, if I run into somebody, um, I might say, how you going, mate? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then then they're just like, whoa, what the heck? I wasn't expecting this guy, uh, to be saying that to me. And, and so instead of kind of forcing them into a, you know, oh my God, they just put me on the defensive. I've got to think of something cool. Uh, just sort of flip the script a little bit and say something a little, a little bit, you know, offbeat. I'll give you another of mine. I love asking people what they had for breakfast. And then following up because it is such a great way to learn about people. I mean, grape nuts is so different than, you know, an egg McMuffin. And if you had it with hot or cold milk and if you have the same thing every day and, you know, if you even had breakfast or if you had it at 2 p.m. instead of, you know, 7 a.m. And it's just a whole window into their world. And, of course, it transcends, you know, every person in every class in every situation wherever you are in the world. And so, you know, I, I love that. I, I feel like I could pretty happily, maybe this is why I'm a journalist. I could, I could interview every person on earth for 10 minutes about what they had for breakfast and just have a delighted life. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, and just from the psychological lens, it's also psychologically safe to ask that question. You're, you're essentially empowering them to, to speak their own reality they don't need to be defensive about their breakfast either, right? And so, and yet, you're like you said, you're going to get a window in. So I think uh, in terms of the calculus for your uh, ability to learn about them and then their ability to to share in a safe way, that's a that's a wonderful question to ask. So let's wrap up. What is your big picture perspective on? mindset and how we can choose it or how it can control us, uh, or any kind of next steps, you know, how would you kind of wrap up what we've discussed? I think mindset, as I said at the beginning, just the imagery of mindset kind of being at the center, it is the hub where the spokes of the wheel then can be generated from. It's incredibly, um, comforting in a sense to not get stuck in a specific you know, dogma around one mindset, but to realize that how you frame your approach to going into waking up into the world has a tremendous effect on what the world will show and share with you. So I think that there's a beautiful dance between those two concepts of I am self-authoring everything and I am, you know, in charge of nothing and I need to ride the wave. And, and I think mindset ends up being that, that tool or model uh, for us to be able to kind of, you know, build the scaffolding around what we perceive, how our nervous system reacts to the moment we're in, how we engage with other people, how we engage with ourselves and how we how we can have the emotional agility to pivot off of one thing from from to another so i i really think it's a word that is you know in a sense overblown and and carol dweck has done the lion's share of the work to discuss you know fixed mindset versus growth mindset and growth mindset i think has been misinterpreted to some degree it's not that people in growth mindset uh get the the sort of the dopamine hit from uh, accomplishing things that are difficult or challenging for them. It's that, that they, before they begin the activity, they get the dopamine hit and they say, oh, cool, another challenge. So it's not the result that gives them that, that spike. It's the fact that as they hit their edge, they say, oh, cool. 
as the fixed mindset people would uh, obviously flip that around and say, I don't want to go by that edge because I've had some success right here. So I think I'll leave people with that. When you hit your edge, can you open your eyes? Can you expand and be curious? And can you say, oh, cool? Yes. I'm picturing the two guys in the happiness game coming out of the dining hall with their respective trays for the other person. And the really exciting part isn't actually forcing the other, your competitor to eat these terrible things, but what on earth, what plate did he prepare for you? You know, can you, you just have to have that curiosity and you have to have that excitement. I don't mean like you have to in a moral sense. I just mean, I'm sure that was actually secretly the most fun part of the game is what on earth is he going to have put on that plate in front of me? Beautiful. I agree. So whatever plate is put in front of us, if we can have that, that sense of awe, that, whoa, look at that. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. So we'll, uh, we'll link to all the sources uh, that we can, that we kind of mentioned in the show from values, actions, strengths, you know, sort of checklist to the quotes that I did and anything else we can kind of think of. Anything else in closing? Stay curious, my friends. I wish you great happiness, Damon, uh, one way or another, and we'll talk more soon. Sounds great, Jeremy. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy N. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts, the best ways of being human and being alive. <laughs>